invite you to stand as I read for you our text from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and read beginning in verse 1, just to put the little broader context for you. So if you'll just go back to verse 1 and let us read the text. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith, of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. When I was about 18 years old, a few years ago, my father-in-law Lloyd, who was not my father-in-law at the time, asked me to help him break up some ground in the front of his house as he was intending to put in a new concrete walk path. He figured I must be strong enough, and I figured I had a great opportunity to impress the father of the girl that I liked by the name of Laura. I got there in the morning, and he handed me a pickaxe. Now, to just give some background on this story, it is the first time I ever held a pickaxe in my hand. He handed it to me, and he said, go ahead and break up the ground. Okay. Well, to be fair, I had played all all sorts of sports as I was growing up. I I, uh, had done all sorts. I was on the football team and ran track. So, I mean, how hard could this be to do this pickaxe thing, right? So I clumsily swung the pickaxe, and it hit the dirt for the first time, and nothing happened to the dirt. My hands began to sting, though. I thought, well, I played some baseball. I must need a tighter grip. So I clumsily picked that, and I put that down again, and nothing happened of consequence. This went on for about 20 minutes, and I'm like, this is going to be miserable. How, how do you do this? I don't know if Lloyd was laughing or watching me. He came out about 20 minutes later and didn't say a word to me. He just put his hand out and took the pickaxe, 
Lloyd stood tall at about five foot six, and he took that pickaxe and he kind of brushed me aside and and he took that thing in his hand and he had this big old huge arch and he swung that thing and bam, it hit the ground and dirt went flying everywhere. He did that a dozen times. And I'm like, oh my word. Without saying anything, he handed the pickaxe back to me. And he stood there and he watched me and I tried to imitate what I'd just seen. I did, and lo and behold, the ground began to break beneath my feet. He went back into the house, probably drank some lemonade, and watched me do the rest of that work. I share the story because it made me think, what was the difference between the first way I approached the task versus the second way? I mean, both Lloyd and I had the very same equipment. It wasn't like it was even two different pickaxes. It wasn't like one was sharper or heavier than the other. I accomplished nothing with the same tool that he had accomplished something. I would have been described as pathetic in my attempt while he had perfected his technique that had yielded results. Well, in my final analysis, it had nothing to do with the equipment. It had something to do with the way I was using that particular equipment. In our study of 2 Peter, we've examined the first four verses of this text, and we have found that our salvation, as well as everything that's necessary for us to live a life that pleases God, has been provided for us by God. Everything pertaining, everything necessary. It says in verse 1, if you'll note, God has granted or we have received the same faith. There's the tool. Every believer has the very same tool as every other believer. There's not varying degrees of this tool. We've all received the same faith. We've received the we've received or been granted the same grace that God enabling work for by which we can work for Christ we've been granted the same peace the confidence that we are right with God because of Christ we've been granted everything that we need for life and godliness in verse 3 and in verse 4 we've seen we've been granted the very promises that he himself will make us more like himself becoming partakers of the divine nature and if that's not enough, he will actually remove us from the corruption that is in this world. That brings us to verse 5. And beginning in verse 5, Peter takes all of this truth that he has given, and in effect, he is handing it off to believers like Lloyd handed me the pickaxe, and he's saying, put it to use. You were not saved to be dull, you were not saved to be dumb, you were not saved to be destroyed, you were saved to accomplish the glory of God. You will see him at work in your life. And so Peter hands us this tool and says, go and make it work. In a moment, we'll come to see 
that this tool of faith is able to accomplish. We'll see what it's able to accomplish, but it does beg the question, if every believer has the same faith, then why is it that not all break up the ground for cultivating godliness at the same rate? Does it not seem to us that there are those who do swing the pickaxe of faith, as it were, with greater success than others? Some of us feel at times that we're trying to live by faith and we barely put a dent in the ground. While we see others go before us and they're like, they're like, Machines just plowing the ground before us. Beloved, the issue lies not in the equipment. It is not in the faith. But with knowing and learning how to wield that faith in a manner that produces what God expects. This morning we will consider the matter of how to cultivate Christian character we want to answer the questions, what does, what does the Christian life look like? What is it that God expects to see? What should we be expecting to see in our own lives first and foremost, but then even to be able to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, I see God at work in you. How do you measure that? What is the, what is the standard? Well, Peter gives us that standard. He lays it right out before us. This is what it is to look like. This is what saving faith produces in the life of those who have been saved. And we ask then, is our life producing godliness? Is it producing Christ-likeness? And those sometimes are abstract terms. We just say, oh, we're going to be more like Christ. And then the question should be, some of our younger folks might say, well, what on earth does that look like? Well, and here's Peter coming to the rescue because he answers the question. Notice in verse 5, we begin with a transition. It says, now for this very reason also. Well, what reason is that, Peter? Based on everything that he has revealed in verses 1 through 4, because these things are true, because he is, God has granted us faith and grace and peace and everything necessary for life and godliness and his precious and magnificent promises to be made like Jesus, then this is to be the expected result. This is to be the response in all of that. Beloved, everything we need to live a godly life in and for Jesus Christ is ours. If we will wake up to that reality, we need not be defeated. So many of us at times can feel like I'm inadequate for the task. That's not wielding your faith properly. Because you have the same faith that Peter had, the same faith that Paul had. You have the same faith of the great leaders that you've read in the past, whether D. Martin, Lloyd-Jones, or whoever it might be, that, that you just say, there's a person of God. You have the same faith. We have it all. Every resource is at our disposal. All the supplies are provided. Every tool is in our bag. The divine blueprints are laid out before us. And each of us stands ready to grow in godliness. And the only thing that hinders the growth is your properly wielding that faith that he has given to you. But now we are about to learn that growing in godliness has expectations. God expects something 
He wants to see his work through you. And spiritual growth in the Christian life, as we'll see, does not come without the strenuous involvement of the believer. Oh, I guess we would wish to coast into the kingdom. Just get saved and then sit back and drink cold lemonade until the Lord takes us home. But that's not the way that God has designed it. You and I must be engaged and we must be intent on cultivating the qualities that Peter outlines for us here as they demonstrate the reality of our faith in Christ, that we truly have saving faith, as well as give us assurance that God has chosen us, has called us, is going to take us home. Beloved, everything necessary pertaining to life and godliness is ours. As I was thinking through that, I wrote out a list of the things that God has provided for us. I had to cut the list in half, and then I had to cut it in half again because it made the message too long. So let me just give you a few things very quickly. I'll give you the verse references if you can write them down, but I want you to be overwhelmed with what God has given you if you are in Christ. We have the forgiveness of sin, according to Colossians 1.14. We have the grace of God to help us in time of need, according to 2 Corinthians 12.9 and Hebrews 4.16. We have the peace of God that gives us confidence to endure, Philippians 4.7. We have, get this, the mind of Christ for knowledge and wisdom as to how to live, Colossians 2, verse 3. We have the love of God, which empowers us to live and to love, 1 John 4, 19. We have the presence of Christ within our hearts to encourage us, Ephesians 3, 17. We have the Spirit of God who gifts each one of us so that we might serve the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We have the confidence that Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, even in this moment, always living to make intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, praying for you always. When we are weak in our faith, when our prayers seem pathetic, the Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf. Romans 8.26 The Spirit of God works in us to reveal the qualities of His fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. God the the Father provides us with every spiritual blessings in Christ, not one lacking, Ephesians 1, 3. We have been granted the full armor of God by which to stand against the schemes, the wiles of the devil, Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. We have the promise, the promise that there is no temptation that is too great for us. We need not succumb to the temptation because God provides the way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And we have the promises The promise is that God's word is profitable to equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. There is so much more than to this pickaxe of faith, is there not? 
and yet we barely begin to scratch the surface of what it means to have everything pertaining to life and godliness along with all the precious and magnificent promises of God. We could not exhaust the list, but hopefully I've provided you enough to capture your attention and to set the stage for what we are going to read beginning in verse 5, which now says, now for this very reason also, in light of all these great promises and all of these marvelous provisions, because we've been granted everything we need for life and godliness in Christ, Peter says, in effect, you are ready. Get the axe and get to work because we have things to do. Therefore, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. In sum, in summary of this, because the Lord has given to us everything that we need to be godly, everything we need to look like Christ, it is time, beloved, to get to work. It is time to work hard. It is time to sweat for the Lord, and I'm not talking about some kind of aerobic class. I'm talking a spiritual sweat by which we labor hard to see God at work in our lives, to cultivate true Christian character. Tying this with verse 4, the divine nature believers have received must now be exercised daily in the endeavors of godly living. Your faith is like a muscle and it needs to be exercised. With all of this background, let us look this morning then at the qualities that our text instructs believers to be cultivating, and we'll do this by means of two points. First, we will see a growing faith requires fervency, followed by a growing faith results in fruit. So we want to see, are we fervent in our faith? And then we want to ask, do we see fruit in our faith? So let's begin with that first point. A growing faith requires fervency. The little phrase that demonstrates this is the statement applying all diligence. Beloved, when it comes to living out this life of faith, of pursuing godliness, of seeking to become more and more like Jesus Christ with in attitude and actions, it begins by applying all diligence. In the Greek text, if you were to read it, the very first word in the text is the word diligent. It's put there for emphasis. It is the desire of Peter to emphasize this word diligence. It is Peter's desire to impress this upon his readers, and I love the word diligence. In the past, I have defined the word diligent for you with this very simple definition, maximum effort. Applying maximum effort. It gives you a, an interesting picture. It's putting everything you've got into whatever it is that you are doing. And yet I submit to you that that does not begin to capture the depth of what the word means that Peter has used. 
What does it mean? Well, first, the word diligent carries the idea, listen, of quick movement or haste in the interest of a person or cause. It is seeing something and getting to it fast. If somebody were to to drop down because of a heart attack or need CPR, we don't all just stand back and go, oh, look at that. Somebody with some skill will move in haste to get there. That's the idea of diligence. Nothing will get in my way of getting to this issue and doing it as quickly as I can. If we are to cultivate Christian character, there must be an urgency. I have been granted faith. Now I want to quickly put it to use. That's the idea of diligence. But there's more to it. In addition to this idea of urgency, the word diligence speaks of intense earnestness or zeal in the performance. It's not just that I'm going to do there, get it, get to it quickly. I'm going to get to it quickly. I'm going to do it with zeal. I'm going to do it with fervency. I'm going to do it to the very best of my ability. And so the idea, as you see behind this word, is uh, diligence. It's the urgency to to do something in the best interest of oneself with zeal and fervency. He's applying it to you. I need to develop this idea of earnestness and zeal and fervency in the working out of my faith. What is the opposite of this? What is the opposite of quick quickness and, and fervency and zeal? Well, the, the opposite of diligence is slothfulness. The opposite of what we're being called here to do is being lazy or sluggish. No one has the thought, I can concern myself with being more Christ-like tomorrow and then accomplishes anything for the glory of God. If your attitude is, I can do it tomorrow, you are not living up to what it means to be saved. This is not the faith that works. Christ was neither lazy. Christ was neither apathetic. And if we would be like him, we must seek to be diligent. Think of an Olympic athlete. He sets his eyes on the prize and allows nothing to get in his way. He spends hours and hours and hours doing his routine or whatever it is over and over again. Beloved, this is the biblical mindset that we are to strive for in our faith. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul speaks about the athlete who competes for the prize. Listen to what Paul says in verses 24 through 27. He says it in a way that's kind of like, come on, guys, you already know this, right? Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. That's diligence. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things, not just some things, all things. They, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. There's a lot there, of course. But at some level and in some ways, we all in this room are familiar with bodily discipline, are we not? 
We have at times made sacrifices. We have foregone things that we might have liked in order to receive the reward of those sacrifices. Beloved, we need to see that the Christian life offers a prize far greater than a gold medal won by an Olympic athlete. That's nothing. I don't care who your favorite Olympic athlete is. I don't care how much you cheered for him or her when they stood on that podium and they got the gold medal. That is nothing compared to what you will receive if you will discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Our prize is eternal life. Our prize is the eternal, being in the eternal presence of God himself. This is why Paul concludes by saying they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in a way. I'm disciplining myself, he says. I discipline my body and make it my slave. This is, is Paul's description of what it means to be applying all diligence. What would the description of your life be? Does it look like this? Well, looking back at our second Peter text in verse 5, the call here is to work hard in growing in godliness, in becoming more like Jesus. And notice that Peter does something else in here. We kind of focused on diligence, but he doesn't say, now for this very reason also, apply diligence. What does he say? He says applying all diligence. That is a most comprehensive kind of diligence. Every area of your life is to be submitted to this purpose of knowing Christ. It underscores, the, the word all underscores the comprehensiveness of our duty. Our diligence must neither be half-hearted, nor can it be selective. Don't we do that? I'll do this today, but I'll leave this other part for tomorrow. I'm going to pray today, but I'm going to do my Bible reading tomorrow. And we start doing those kinds of things. Uh, I, I will obey Christ here in this moment, but over here, it's okay. I don't need to obey him anymore for this next couple of hours. This is an all-in proposition. Some of us here are guilty of living half-heartedly for the Lord. I imagine that each and every one of us would say we've had those experiences. Such half-heartedness benefits neither you nor the Lord's work. It brings glory not to God, and it does not bring you any closer to Christ. It is time to be all in, and as we just said, 1 Timothy 4, 7, to discipline yourself for the purpose of what? Godliness. You should say, I want to be more like Christ. I don't want anything standing in my way. It is time to press hard for the prize. As 1 Timothy 4.8 tells us, the very next verse, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things. Did you get that promise? Your godliness will profit you in your job. It will profit you in your relationship, in your marriage with your kids. It will profit you in your endeavors. It will profit you even in your leisure time. It is to be that which profits you in all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We've spoken about diligence and what it is. We've noted the word all pointing to the full and comprehensive nature of the duty of this matter. But what is the duty? 
We'll look at the verb. It says applying. The, the verb there literally means bringing alongside. This verb speaks of bringing something alongside simultaneously with that which you already have. And so we might translate it. Some translations have this as adding, adding all diligence. A recipe may call for flowers, for flour, not flowers, flour and eggs. And you'll see in the recipe, because I do put my hand up making some cookies when no one else will make them for me. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be in trouble for that one. And you'll put the, it'll say, put the flour in a bowl. And then it will say, whisk your eggs up. And then it says what? Add it to the flour and mix it all together. That's the idea. We're bringing these things alongside of one another and mixing it in. The egg simultaneously being brought alongside or put in with the flour to be stirred. In our text, diligence, applying maximum effort, is to be put into the mix of what God has granted to us in verses 1 through 4. This is you now getting to add something to the mix. This is you getting to participate in this divine recipe of what faith is going to produce in your life. We, we kind of say it this way, and I, I want to be clear on this, that we've spoken much on salvation in verses 1 through 4, and now what we're really looking at is sanctification. What is sanctification? That process whereby God makes us more like Jesus Christ, only we get to participate in it. It's like the little kid when you're making the cookies. And I got little grandchildren that say they want to help. It just means I'm going to have eggshells in there and I'm going to have stuff spread everywhere. But, you know, you let they want to help. This is, this is our opportunity to, to bring it all together. So we might say, according to this verse, for this very reason, together with the provisions and promises of God, add all your diligence to the mix and stir it in for the results that are to follow. That's my translation. Nobody else would put that in the whole Bible. but Before we consider the results, the ways in which we are called to pursue our Christian character or godliness, let us get our heads wrapped around Peter's argument so far. What Peter is saying is this. Since we have received from God everything we need to live godly lives, let us work fervently at living godly lives. That's the argument. Since you've got it all, start doing it. Don't be simply a hearer of the word. Now be an effectual doer with zeal and fervency. I need you to consider this, for so many get this wrong. What seems so simple up there, we have a tendency to put in reverse. And that's what gets us in trouble. Peter is not saying, as so many Christians get themselves in trouble by saying, let us work fervently at living godly lives so that we might receive everything we need to live godly lives. I've got to do something to get this. No, you already have it. Now use it. That's the difference. 
there's a huge difference in the, in the two statements there. Peter writes, in effect, that God has wondrously saved us. He has called us to himself. He's given us everything we need. And as a result of this, we are now to be diligent, moving with urgency and zeal to use these gifts that we have received in order to live godly. The incorrect way of thinking says that we have that we want to have God's blessing in our life. If we do want to have God's blessing, well, we need to work really hard in order to obtain those blessings. And Peter's saying, and the word of God teaches, they're already yours. Stop trying to get that which Christ has already purchased for you and now put it to use, dear, dear, dear believer. Scripture never says that we are to work really hard in order to obtain the blessings of God. They are already ours if we are in Christ. God gives us what we need so that we might then live accordingly. For example, the passage that we're considering in our second hour, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Note the pattern there. What's the pattern? God graciously saves us, not as a result of anything that we have done, And now, in light of that, we are to walk in the works that he has prepared for us in advance. The same thing. We see the same idea in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13, where we read Paul's exhortation and reminder to the believers, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We've heard that one before. Always include verse 13 with it, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The only reason why you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, is because God has started the work in you. What does it mean to work out your salvation? To me, it just means work hard. Be diligent in your striving to be godly. This is the continuity of Scripture. We see the same thing being taught. But then the reminder that God is the one who is at working in you, working according to his own sovereign pleasure in his own sovereign time, so that you might become that partaker of, of promises, of, of these promises. It is work out your salvation precisely because God is already at work in you. And isn't that what Peter's saying? God's already given you everything. Now get to work. The argument of Peter from, in verses 1 through 4, transitioning to verse 5, is this. Because believers have received all things for life and godliness, we must be diligent to see this godliness now worked out in our lives. We must get this right, because if you don't, you're not living according to the truth. Many believers uh, can act as though we must strive to obtain God's blessings and God's grace. No, such things are already ours. The scriptures teach us that we possess all of these things. Therefore, we aim not to obtain them, but to cultivate them and see them worked out in our lives. I pray that that's what we would desire, and we would do that with a fervency, with a zeal. And that brings us to our second point, a growing faith results in fruit. In the end of verse 5 into verse 7, Peter makes a list. Sounds kind of like Paul. Paul loves lists. Now Peter's imitating Paul, and he gives us this list of things. I'm so grateful that the Holy Spirit, moving in the heart of Peter, grants to us what the result of God's working in us 
and our applying all diligence looks like? What does the character of the Christian striving to be godly look like? What is the fruit of that life? And Peter provides us with seven characteristics that are the results. These are the evidences that God is at work in you. Do you want to know? How, the question, how do I know if I'm saved, Pastor? Do you see God working these things in your life? If you do not, then you need to question your status with the Lord. If you do, then you can be assured that God is working in you. And it will be at varying degrees in various ways. But do you see these things at work in your life? All of this begins with the very main command in verses 5 through 7. The main verb in, these, in this is, is this, in your faith, supply. You see the word supply? That is the command in verses 5 through 7. You are to supply something to your faith. I love the word supply. It is epikoriego in the Greek. You say, why did you tell us the Greek, epikoriego? Well, epi is a preposition meaning above or beyond. And koriego, we get our English word choreography from that word. What does a, chore what does a, a choreographer do? He or she orchestrates. We normally think of dancing, but it's someone who orchestrates something. Some, the word means to, to add or to minister, to provide or to arrange or to orchestrate something. So we get our word choreograph from it. To choreograph is to manage, to maneuver, and to direct. For Peter's original readers, what they would have understood with this word is the, this idea. For them, it pictured a very rich man who lavishly supplies everything necessary for the training and staging of a grand chorus in some public celebration. So you had some producer-like person that said, I have all of the provisions, I have everything we need to put on this grand display, this great chorus. And so the main idea is of generously cooperating in, in an activity. Believers are called to engage now with the patron, the rich patron who has supplied everything, who is God. And we get to choreograph our lives with these characteristics. We get to manage them. We get to put them in, in order so that they give off this wondrous display of who God is as he's at work in our lives. Believers are not simply to choreograph, though. Again, we are to go above and beyond arranging and, and orchestrating our lives so that they are consistent with our, with our faith. It's epi-choreago. It's not just choreago. It's not just, uh, you know, put something together at the last minute. Sometimes we, with our youth group, will say, here's five items now. You have five minutes to put together a little skit that kind of outlines a parable of Jesus. And, and quite frankly, they're terrible. They choreograph it because, you know, they use a telephone and a water bottle, and they have to try to make it apply somehow. And it's just like we laugh because it's, it's just crazy. That's not what we're called to do. We're to really think through how does my life manifest the qualities that God is working out in my life. God is the producer. And we now get to be directors, directing the way these things are manifest in our lives. The call is not for believers to supply anything that's been provided by God. The call is to arrange your life in such a way that the fruit of God being at work in your life is put on display for others to see. 
And just what does God desire to see? What does the producer want to see as you choreograph your life? Well, we find seven characteristics that are to be included, cultivated. Before we look at them, let me have you notice one last thing here that Peter introduces uh, with each of these traits. He, he uses the word in, meaning in connection with the previous thought. He's talking about some kind of logical flow here. And I want to be careful because it's not that, that uh, we begin with moral excellence. It says uh, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge. Uh, it's not that, that these are necessarily uh, uh, you can't have one without the other. It's just that you should see these flowing out in some way like this. It's a logical order, but I submit to you it all happens simultaneously. These are all things that have to work. You don't wait to demonstrate love until you've mastered the first six. It's just that they tend to flow out logically this way in Peter's mind. Another thing that I would have you notice, it's not in our English text, is that in each one of these, in the Greek text, it would read this way, and in uh, uh, it's the moral excellence. It's and in your the moral excellence knowledge, and in uh, or the knowledge, and in your knowledge the self control, and in your self control the perseverance. There's a the making it definitive. This is something you are to be noting in your particular life. And so I want you to note those, how they flow from one another, out of one another. And so with that background, let us consider these seven characteristics very quickly, one by one. The first one is the moral excellence. Some translations have this as goodness, the NIV. Uh, the ESV and K KJV call it virtue. And all of these ideas are captured in this, this word. Ultimately, the word that's translated moral excellence, it speaks of that which is completely righteous, that which is attractive, that which is excellent about the way one lives his or her life. It is to be of supreme excellence is the idea. Recall that the same word is used in verse 3 to describe Jesus. You remember that if you look at verse 3, who is described as having both glory with reference to his deity and moral excellence referring to his humanity. Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 2.9, a very familiar uh, passage for us where he exhorts believers to be proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the same word. The one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, we are to proclaim all his moral excellencies and then we are to imitate those things. We are to be telling others how lovely and how virtuous and how righteous Jesus truly is and then we are to emulate that virtue and that righteousness. Peter is calling believers to diligently pursue moral excellence. Are you doing that? Oh, the things that we see on TV, the things that we can call up on our phones, the things that can capture our attention. And Peter is saying, are you making haste? Are you, are you quickly getting to this matter of choreographing moral excellence in your life? People should see that. If you, God's at work in you, you should be seeking to live a life of moral excellence. This is an attribute of Christ. And it is to be evident in the lives of his people. We must apply maximum effort to see this kind of morality manifested within us. 
We might think that the pursuit of moral excellence would be sufficient, and yet Peter goes on to say, in your moral excellence, supply the knowledge. The word knowledge here is a simpler form of that which we found in verses 2 and 3. Remember back there it was epignosis, uh, 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 an above knowledge as it were. Here it's simply gnosis. It's just a very, the word means a very practical working knowledge of something or someone. In the Greek it literally says, again, the knowledge in contrast to the false knowledge about Christ that is being preached by the false teachers Peter will address in chapter 2. The idea here is that a believer, you ready for this? What kind of knowledge are we talking about? Do you know enough about Christ to emulate his moral excellence? This is the knowledge, the working practical knowledge of Christ. You are to be cultivating that kind of knowledge. The idea is to know Christ a little bit more today than you did yesterday and to long to know Christ a little bit more tomorrow than you did today so that you're cumulatively adding to this knowledge. I know how Christ lived so that I might now apply that to my moral, my practice of moral excellence. Are we are we pursuing the living out of the moral excellencies of Christ? And we can only do that as we have a greater practical knowledge of how Christ lived. But there's more. Peter says that in your knowledge supply self-control. Self-control, the self-control. Peter paints a vivid picture here as the Greek word literally means, ready, self-control, holding yourself in. You been there before? Oh, well, I... I've been there before, but usually it's me seeing everything blowing out, right? Self-control, that literal meaning, holding yourself in, it speaks of someone who is able to control his own desires, his cravings, his longings to sin. The picture is painted by, painted by this word is that of a powerful man inside of you that desperately wants to escape your body, causing you to sin. You felt that before? that old man, that old nature. But for the person of faith, the one who is choreographing moral excellence based on the knowledge of Christ, the one, this one is stronger than the flesh inside. You are able to say no to ungodliness and worldly desires, Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Our translation of self-control then does a good job of conveying this idea. There is two words, self and control. Exercising a power over the sinful tendencies within, whether it be anger or lust or pride or whatever manifestation of evil. This is a person who sees that strong urge within and by faith, pursuing moral excellence according to the knowledge they have of how Christ lived now holds in and holds back those sinful tendencies. They're able to resist the temptation that's seeking to take control. Notice that the call here is not to, you ready? It does not say have self-control. Rather, we are to see that self-control is already present. Reminder that self-control is an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, is it not? In fact, I would argue that what Peter's doing here is giving us somewhat of an expanded list of what is the fruit of the Spirit. How do you know if God's at work in you? Paul says, what's the fruit of the Spirit? And you're familiar with that. 
Peter does something very similar, only he's using some different terminology. Some of it's the same because guess what? The Spirit's not limited to just nine manifestations of what God, it looks like to have God at work in your life. So Peter's using some different pictures for us. The call then is to be increasing in self-control, becoming better and better at putting to death the manifestations of the flesh. We are to fervently long for more self-control in our life, to have more today than we did yesterday and more tomorrow than we have today. But Peter's not done. He says, in your self-control, supply the perseverance. This is a very interesting word to translate. In the ESV, some of you use that. It's translated as steadfastness. The King James uses the word patience. Often, when we have such a variety of translations, it tells us that the word itself is multifaceted. It's a pregnant word. It means more than any one English word can put into it. One interesting trait about perseverance, though, that I would have that stands out to me as I consider this is that perseverance takes time to notice, doesn't it? You just don't persevere. You have to go through things. You have to stand the test of time. Self-control or the lack thereof can be seen in any given moment, right? Moral excellence is also something that can be seen or betrayed in just a few minutes. But perseverance, this this patience, this steadfastness, this holding on for a long time is something that is to be seen over the long haul. It is revealed only after it has been tested and tried and then tested and tried again. At this time of year, at the tail end of winter, we tend to think of the trees as being leafless, right? And for the most part, that's true. But I have some trees on my property that still have some leaves on them. Those trees have refused, or those leaves have refused to give up. They've been through wind. They've been through snow. They've been through rain. There's been ice. And what are they doing? They're still hanging on for dear life. That's perseverance. The word perseverance literally has the idea of uh, meaning to stay or to abide under something. It pictures someone being steadfast and unflinching while bearing up under a heavy load. The world is pressing in on them, but they will not be shaken because of their faith that is, is pursuing moral excellence. The practical knowledge of Christ is now exercising self-control. Therefore, it's hanging in there through it all. The world will seek to squeeze the life out of you, but the believer who exercises faith and knowledge and self-control is the one who is able to withstand all of these difficulties that will be thrown at them, causing them to sin or to give up the pursuit of Christ. But Peter goes on. He says, in your perseverance, supply the godliness. The basic meaning of godliness is this. It means an attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all things. I want to please God in all things, not just here on Sunday morning, not just at certain times, but in all things. But I submit that the term godliness is sometimes misunderstood. There are many who equate godliness simply by those things they choose to do or not to do. It's a list for many. The godly are those who, well, go to church weekly. They wear a suit and tie to church. Oh. 
The godly are the ones that use the NASB 95 translation. The godly do not drink. The godly do not go to the movies. Well, you get the point. The problem with this is that godliness becomes nothing more than what? Legalism. It becomes a, a, a codified list of do's and don'ts. Beloved, godliness is an attitude of the heart that longs to please God. It will end up doing certain things and not doing other things, not because it's trying to keep a list, simply because it longs to live to please God. As one pursues God, as he begins to assimilate an increasing measure of God-likeness, that's godliness. And what is God like? God is full of truth, full of grace, full of mercy, compassion. He's full of love. And beloved, the godly pursue God to manifest those very things. Godliness brings the sanctifying presence of God into every aspect of your life. It will certainly lead you to do some things and to leave off others, but that's not the goal. The goal of godliness is to manifest the image of God within you for which you were created. But there's more. Peter says, in your godliness, apply the brotherly kindness. The, more literally, this says brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia in the Greek. The combination of the word philos, meaning a reciprocating love, uh, a family love, a familial love, and a delphos, which means brother. And so we say it's a love of brothers. It's probably better to say it's a familial love. The term expresses a warm brotherly affection between those who are spiritual relatives in the family of God. It is more than a passing disposition of fondness for fellow believers. It actually manifests itself in overt acts of kindness. That's why it gets translated this way, of kindness. It, it was this affectionate relationship that the early church experienced among the believers in spite of the fact that they came from so many diverse backgrounds. They were, they were amazed that, or the, the pagans were amazed at the early church because you had all sorts of ethnic backgrounds meeting together, worshiping the one true God. But such a brotherly affection towards other Christians must be cultivated, for it entails difficult duties, such as a willingness to bear one another's burdens, to forgive others of their shortcomings, to tolerate, to put up with one another. Peter calls us to increase in our brotherly, brotherly affection towards others. And do not let this pass you by without a thought. This is a call to be creative. When he says adding, supplying, choreograph this chore choreographing of brotherly kindness, the idea here that Peter's getting at is that you get to be creative in the way that you demonstrate kindness to others in the church. This is not an option. He says, this is what it means to have saving faith. You will find ways to, to demonstrate special encouragement to others. This is not something to think about doing sometimes. This is to be your diligent activity. There's to be an urgency and a zeal to see it happen. God has granted to you everything to do it. Now Peter says, go and demonstrate brotherly kindness. And this brings us to the last of the characteristics that Peter says, in your brotherly kindness supply 
love. Some might think that this is somewhat repetitive given that we just considered Philadelphia brotherly love. However, love, agape love, the Greek word, describes something even greater and something even more demanding than Philadelphia love. In the Greek language, there are actually three kinds of love. There's eros, there's philos, and agape. And the first one, eros, describes a sexual love, that which is to be experienced in, in the marriage bed. The second term, philos, describes that which is said to be that brotherly love where we we do acts of kindness towards one another. There's kind of a, a give and take. But the final term, agape, describes what we might say a divine love. The first love, eros, has been described as a take sort of love. The second love, philos, has been described as a give and take sort of love. And the third love described here in our text has been described simply as a give sort of love. It just gives. This is the love that Peter exhorts believers to cultivate. I've longed to find this kind of love, as you see up there, as a one-way unconditional act of the will, an attitude of the heart that seeks the highest good for another, regardless of the cost and all to the glory of God. What Peter has in mind then is similar to what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 13. You ever read that one? Informing us that agape love is patient, it is kind, It is not jealous. It is not that which brags or boasts. Such a love does not seek its own. Such a love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. It is this kind of love in verse 7 of chapter 13 that bears all things, hopes all things, believes all things, and what? Endures all things. Such is the love that was demonstrated to us by our Lord Jesus Christ while he was on the cross. It is because of Christ's great love for us that he died for us even while we were his enemies, Romans chapter 5. The call here then is to cultivate love. Why does Peter give us this list of seven qualities to cultivate in our lives? Well, next week we will consider a deeper answer as to how we, uh, to that, but we'll close this morning in short by saying we are to see our faith manifests itself in moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Those are, you ready for this? Those are the signs of life. If you come here today and profess yourself to be a Christian and you have little or none of those things, you're dead. You look dead at least. And we need some resuscitation. These are the indicators that God has granted to you faith and grace and peace and and everything necessary to please him in his great and magnificent promises. As we close, let me restate again how these qualities relate to one another. The indication here is that these characteristics, they build on one another. They, They manifest themselves through one another. However, I do not think we are to consider them as necessarily sequential. They happen simultaneously. These qualities that help us grow in Christ's likeness. Perhaps it would be better to consider them as skills. And they do flow out from one another, but all are needed at the same time to properly live for God. You're not going to live for God well if you only seek to do one of the seven things. Being a keyboardist, consider how I practice scales and chords and 
arpeggios and other technique exercises so that when it comes for me to do the particular work, I apply all of those skills simultaneously to produce the music. I need them all. As we relate these to our Christian walk, consider these qualities as a vine whose stock is, is putting out shoots like moral excellence and knowledge and, and self-control and such. And some of these shoots may grow quite rapidly and others may need some help to grow more quickly. But all of them are to be growing and working together for the health of the plant. And so while we're not necessarily to understand them uh, as being sequential, we must know that none of these qualities are ever possible until you first come to faith in Jesus Christ. You can't manufacture these things in a manner that will please the Lord. So then the first question to that is, do you believe? Have you received a faith of the same kind as ours, one that looks to Christ alone as Lord and Savior? If not, why not? Today is the day of salvation. Today the Savior calls you to repent of your sin and to turn from your unbelief. Look to Christ, lean on Christ, cry out to Christ to change you, and he will. If you do, you will be saved. You will be transformed, and you will be put in the position to see these manifest. The second question directed at those who believe is this. How is your cultivating going? You got some weeds that need to be pulled. Is there some pruning that you need to be doing? Are you seeking these qualities in, their li in your life? Are they increasing? We'll speak more of this next week as we look at the next verses. But today, consider the health of your vine. Is it producing these qualities? Has your vine become stagnant? Is it time to prune? For if you do see these things in your life, then I would also say do not be content. Want, you should desire to see them grow even more. And how do you do it? With urgency and zeal, long for your branches to be healthier, stronger, more vibrant in producing fruit for Christ. This is how we begin to cultivate, cultivate Christian character. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and the pictures it paints for us, the delight that we can have that you have done everything we need to live for you, and yet you have given us the privilege, the pleasure, as well as the responsibility to see you at work in our lives by seeing these things manifest, these seven qualities, these seven characters. I pray, Father God, that that would be the desire of each and every heart, that we would see less and less of ourselves and more and more of the Savior, that sin would be put to death, that we'd be killing sin, knowing that if we don't, it will be killing us. Father, we desire to grow in our appreciation and our understanding of Christ so that you would be glorified and that you in turn might use our lives to bring others along in the faith. And so, Father, we thank you for these challenges that you've given to us. May we desire to come and come to Christ alone to see these things accomplished in our lives for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.